Well, I am originally from Kansas. And growing up, I could stand out in our front yard and see an ocean. An ocean of wheat. When the warm summer winds blew across the open plains, the wheat would toss and roll like a sea of gold. And you know, that's an area of the country that's known for its agriculture. And every year, during the second week in June, it's the time when the wheat fields are ripe and ready to be harvested. We're talking about a huge job. Hundreds of thousands of acres need to be harvested all inside of about a week and a half window. And something everybody up there knows is that the wheat harvest is a family affair. It's got to be, because it's just simply more work than one man can do on his own. There is so much to get done. There's so much ground to cover that there's actually not even enough hours in a day to get all the work done. They use huge combine harvesters to go through the fields as they collect grain, and they have headlights installed on them so they can work long into the night. It is all hands on deck during the harvest. Friends, family, relatives, people of all ages, everybody's got to be involved. Everybody has to contribute. And we see something similar in our scripture this morning. So I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. Matthew, chapter 9, beginning at verse 35. This is what it says. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. In verse 35, we're given a summary picture of what the ministry of Jesus mainly looked like at that time. It says, Jesus went throughout all the towns and villages of Galilee, teaching in the synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. There were about 200 cities in Galilee at that time and an approximate population of about 3 million people. And whether it was a prominent town or a small village, Jesus went to them with his disciples. Verse 35 tells us that Jesus taught in the synagogues. You know what? A synagogue was essentially a local place of worship for the Jews. And the Jewish teachers there were supposed to teach the people and show them what the Lord was like. Show them who God was. What were his characteristics and his attributes. But so many of the Jewish teachers at that time, they were missing the whole point of God's word. Instead of it actually being focused on God, they had turned it back in on themselves. They had forgotten who the scriptures pointed to. And Jesus is going into these places where the leaders have distorted the actual message of the scriptures, and Jesus teaches what the true meaning is. And that was a major element of his ministry. Secondly, it tells us that Jesus was preaching the good news of the kingdom. The word preaching here doesn't mean that Jesus was going around preaching sermons. It simply means to announce something. Whether he was on the beach of the Sea of Galilee or on the front steps of a synagogue or inside of someone's house, Jesus was going around publicly announcing the good news of God's kingdom. He invested countless hours in being out amongst the crowds, 
looking to intentionally have conversations with anyone who had ears to hear. And his message was fairly simple. The king is here, and he's making a way of salvation and for people to enter into his kingdom. And he told them the way to enter into the kingdom and the benefits of entering into the kingdom. So now it's time for people to repent of their sins and believe in the good news. And we're told at the end of verse 35 that there's a final element of Christ's ministry that we're told about. It's that he went through all the cities and villages of Galilee and he healed every disease and every affliction. I don't know if you caught that. It's worth repeating. He healed every disease and every affliction. Incredible. Jesus is going throughout all the region of Galilee here, almost totally eradicating sickness and impairment wherever it was found. That's incredible. You ever wondered why Jesus healed people? I mean, that's only a temporary fix, isn't it? I mean, eventually there's something that's going to cause them to get sick again and that's going to cause them to die. Well, to answer that question, we need to look at the second main portion of our scripture. Look there with me at verse 36. This is the motivation for Christ's ministry. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know, those who have spent time around sheep know that if left to their own without a shepherd, sheep will just move around aimlessly. They'll wander. They can't figure out how to get back home on their own. They get lost really easily if there's no one to lead them. And that's a dangerous thing because sheep are also pretty unaware of any dangers that might be coming their way. They're lost. They're helpless. They're going to get themselves into big trouble. And of course, they'll be malnourished since they have no shepherd to look after their needs. And when Jesus saw the crowds, that's what he saw. He saw people who were confused frustrated, fearful, operating on human instinct. The Pharisees in the synagogues had failed to lead the crowds of people in the right way. They portrayed God as being unmerciful and ungracious. When Jesus looked out, at the, looked out and saw the enormous crowds of people who were in the towns and villages, he had compassion on them. You know, the word compassion literally means to suffer with someone. Jesus was moved with emotion when he saw the lostness that was before his eyes. That's what drove him to heal people. He had empathy for those who were helpless and beaten down with impairments and poor choices and confusion. This is the motivation for Jesus Christ's ministry. To show what God's love does. Do you want to see what the heart of God looks like for sinful man? Look no further than the ministry of Jesus Christ. I mean, look at him. He is a man on a mission to bring healing and restoration and salvation to a broken, weary, and wayward world. Jesus empathized with the lost. He had compassion. He suffered with them. And while the other Jewish teachers just told everybody to get on their level, Jesus went out and met 
the lost and the hurting and those who had been rebellious where they were at. And through his ministry, God's love collided with a lost and sinful world. So what's the ultimate goal here? Was Jesus just on a crusade against disease? Did he just come to earth to minister to those who were lost so they could have somebody there to comfort them? Well, there's a common denominator between every aspect of Christ's ministry. He came to rescue sinners from the judgment that they're experiencing because of their sin. Did you know that all sickness and all disease and all impairment has its origins in sin? It may not be because of the sick person's personal sin, although it could be, but it's ultimately a result of the fall. When our ancestor Adam chose to rebel against God, this world became flawed. And any imperfection or corruption that we now experience is a direct judgment upon us for our sins as members of humanity. So why did Jesus heal? To rescue sinners from one of the, one of the immediate judgments that they're experiencing. Why did Jesus evangelize? Why did he go around telling people about the good news of the gospel? Because he knew that there was a much more serious judgment on sinners that was going to be coming. You know, back in Kansas, where I'm from, there was sometimes when I'd be driving down the road and notice way off in the distance a huge plume of smoke rising up into the sky. After the wheat harvest in the late summer, this is a common sight to see. It's the time when farmers would set their fields on fire and perform a controlled burn. It's really amazing, especially if you're out driving at night. There's an amazing orange glow in the sky. It can be seen from literally miles away. The owners of the fields who grow crops, they do this to clear their field of all the chaff and the stubble that remains after the harvest. It also gets rid of some of the weeds that have been resistant to herbicides and it kills off some of the pests that have been harmful to the crop. It's amazing to watch how high the flames get as they roll across the field and how they devour everything in their path. And sometimes it gets so intense that they even have to call the fire department out just in case things get out of control. Friends, when Jesus saw the crowds, he didn't just see them in their current problem. Jesus knew that one day God will judge the world and all who remain lost in their sin and rebellion against the judge of the universe will be condemned to the lake of fire, to an eternity of torment in hell. Listen to what John the Baptist says about Jesus earlier in Matthew's gospel. This is what John the Baptist says. He says of Jesus, his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So imagine with me, we're all standing together at the edge of a wheat field with Jesus and his 12 disciples. And as we look around us, we see hundreds of acres of wheat ripe for the harvest. And Jesus looks around at the fields and he turns back to his disciples. And he says what we find here in verse 38. The harvest is plentiful, 
but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's like he's saying, fellas, just look out here. Look how enormous this wheat field is. If we're going to expect to get all this crop harvested, we're going to need more guys to get the job done. So I'll tell you what you need to do. Go and ask the man who owns this field. Go and ask the Lord of the harvest to send us more workers. Because that's what it's going to take to get this job done. But friends, this is no ordinary wheat field. It's a field of people. And it represents all of the lost souls in the entire world. So many people, so little time, so few laborers to help with the work. The time is soon approaching when the harvest will be over and the owner of the field will set it ablaze. All the wheat that's harvested will be safely stored in the barn, but that which remains in the field, tragically, will be left to burn. And unless God sends more laborers to help with the work of reaching the lost, they will not be reached in time, and they'll be devoured in the flames. Now, this is very important. What did Jesus tell his disciples to do? He told them to pray didn't he? Pray for more laborers. And to pray what for those laborers? That God will send them out to work in the harvest, to do exactly what Jesus had been doing this entire time. Pray that God would send laborers out amongst the lost to share the good news of the kingdom and to bring healing and restoration so that lost people could enter into salvation and be spared from the judgment that's to come. Very interesting here. Jesus doesn't tell them to pray for the lost. Not that it's wrong to pray for the lost. We should certainly do that. But it's a whole other thing. Not only to pray for the lost, but to pray that God would send someone to the lost. Because if you keep praying that God would send someone to witness to your neighbor, God, please, Father, send someone to engage with my neighbor. Please, Lord, send someone, anyone, Lord, to share the gospel with my neighbor. You know, eventually, if you pray that prayer enough times, you're going to start thinking to yourself, hmm, maybe, maybe I should go. You see how that works? And unless, and you'll notice that in the next few verses at the start of chapter 10, that's exactly what happens. The disciples themselves, who were told to pray for laborers to be sent out, are themselves sent out by Jesus to do the same work that he was doing. Working in the metaphorical harvest field, as it were. They proclaimed the good news of the gospel and healed diseases and sicknesses and drove out demons. It was the, one who were, it was the ones who were on their knees in prayer who got involved. You see that? Your intercession is what will drive you into the harvest field. So what does this look like for us, FBG? What does it look like for us as individuals to be laborers out in God's harvest field? Well, there's a few things, there's a few things that we need to come to grips with. First, we've got to see the need around us and selflessly look to engage. 
I realize that most people around us seem like they're doing okay. So often we have the temptation to just live and let live. But the truth is that if we, we, if we could see into the hidden lives of those around us, we'd see that everyone is actually living in a state of quiet desperation. Let me ask you a question. Are you able to empathize with the lost? Are you able to put yourself in their shoes? Do you know what it feels like to be lost? Have you ever gotten so caught up in sin that you forgot who you were? And you said to yourself, what am I doing? Have you ever found yourself in a fog of discouragement and hard-heartedness to the point where you just wanted to run away from the Lord? Do you know what it feels like to be so stressed out because you've made a horrible decision and you, don't, you just got no compass to lead you in the right direction and you just feel like you're drowning? Do you know what it's like to be lost? Friends, if anybody should be able to empathize with a lost world, it's us. It's Christians. We have a greater understanding of what sin is and how it impacts people's lives than anyone else. And we know we've got no right to think that we're any better than anyone else. So we should have no problem engaging with those who live sinful lives. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Those who feel God's need, those who feel your own need of God's grace, will best minister to those who need it. Once you understand that, you won't be able to keep yourself out of the harvest field. Something else we need to understand is that this is a mandate for everyone. We've got to have all hands on deck out in the harvest field. Being a disciple by its very nature means that we seek to imitate Jesus and his ministry. Evangelism isn't something that's reserved just for pastors or those who are particularly gifted in this area. This is work that we all share in. It's the mission of our church, isn't it? To love God, love people, and help others do the same. Do you know what kind of people Jesus is talking about sending out into the fields? It's not the professionals, is it? It's laborers. He's looking for laborers. Common, ordinary field hands. I don't know about y'all, but that's really encouraging to me. You don't have to be exceptionally eloquent or gifted to share Christ with someone else. You can do it. You can do it. I realize that most of us feel inadequate in the area of evangelism. We know we should do it, but there's roadblocks that get in our way that make us feel like it's really difficult. We get the impression from our culture that we're supposed to feel embarrassed that we're Christians and that we're not allowed to speak about Jesus in public. 
But brothers and sisters, we have got to get over that. We've got to get past that. If we're his disciples, we take our marching orders from our king, not from our culture. If you're a disciple, own it. That's who you are. That's your identity. Own it. And you know what? You'll probably find that if you approach people in a kind, loving, and gracious way, they're a lot more open to talking about God than what you think. Another obstacle that many of us face is simply not being sure of how to tell someone the gospel. We get scared that someone may ask us questions that we don't know the answer to. We can all relate with that. If that's you, I want to encourage you to take the first step of obedience and learn. Every Christian has to learn. We don't, all of a sudden, once we're born again, we don't understand innately how to communicate the gospel. We've got to be trained and learn how to do it. Get a hold of one of the pastors here and ask them how they do it. They'd be glad to share that with you. So when the rubber meets the road, how does this actually play out? I mean, there are endless opportunities and ways to share your faith with others. I mean, there's 7 billion people in the world, no shortage of opportunities. Some of you may be called to the foreign mission field. And if that's you, you need to go. But for most of us, We're called to be agents of the kingdom of God right where we're at here in Williamson County. So I'd like to suggest to you that the easiest place for us to start is our own neighborhoods. After all, that's the place where God has strategically placed us. And it's a great environment to get to know people and build relationships with your neighbors. Now, if you're anything like me, the idea of sharing the gospel with your neighbors sounds scary. I mean... If the conversation goes poorly, yikes. I mean, I've still got to live next to these people. But about a month ago, I made a discovery. My wife Hannah and I decided to bite the bullet and invite all of our neighbors on our street to join with us here at FBG on Easter Sunday. I wasn't really sure how our conversations would go, To be honest with you, I know this isn't very spiritual, but I didn't really feel like going. I was tired. But I told my wife that I wanted to go, and she held me to it. And we went anyway. Often, when you ring somebody's doorbell or knock on their door, they'll open the door with a certain amount of skepticism. They don't know who you are. But as soon as we identified ourselves as their neighbors, everything changed. It was astounding. The way that people's countenance changed once they learned that we're their neighbors who just live a couple houses down. They knew we weren't trying to sell them something or push anything on them. Most of them were really friendly. And it sort of felt like that meeting was supposed to happen. I mean, we're neighbors. We should know each other, right? And I'll tell you what we told each person. We went up, we rang the doorbell, said, Hi, my name's Jake and this is my wife, Hannah. And we're your neighbors who live a couple houses down. And you know, we care about our neighborhood and we care about the people who live here, so we just wanted to meet you. And most people will smile when you say this. They'll say, oh, that's so sweet. And most people want to be good neighbors. They want to be kind to you, so they'll give you the time of day. Makes it easier. And then I told them that we're members at First Baptist Georgetown, and since we care about them, we wanted to know if there's any way we could pray for them. And then, if they would allow us, 
We prayed for them right then and there. And most of the time, if someone is willing to let you pray for them, they'll listen for a few more minutes and let you share the gospel with them. Share the gospel, church. Woo! That's exhilarating. If you've never done that, you got to try it. And you know, that's the way evangelism always is. You go out dragging your feet, you go out dragging your feet, but you come home clicking your heels. It's incredible. And if you feel stagnant in your faith here today, and maybe you've started to wonder why it is that you come to church every week, let me point you to evangelism. It'll make your faith come alive. You'll soon remember the reason that we gather here as a church body every week is to get equipped and trained so that we can be sent out to do the work of our King. So let me suggest to you that you own your neighborhood. View it as your Galilee. View it as your harvest field. Mine is Highcrest Meadow over on the east side of Georgetown. What's yours? Imagine with me that there was someone who invited you to go into their neighborhood with them as they went around meeting their neighbors and praying for them and sharing the gospel. And you got to just sit back and observe. You got to just sit back and shadow them as they did it. You didn't even have to say anything. Eventually, you're going to see that it's not that hard. And you'll start to feel confident enough to Go out and start doing it in your neighborhood. So you and your friend, you can just switch places. You've been out shadowing them. Now they can go to your neighborhood with you and shadow you. Going a step farther, what if then you invited someone else totally new to come and shadow you while you do it? And then they go off and teach others how to share their faith in their neighborhood. Friends, it's if each of us would learn how to share our faith with our neighbors and teach two other people here in our church how to do the same, we would soon start overlapping neighborhoods and we would reach all of Williamson County with the gospel. Amen. Let's do it, y'all. Let's do it. Let's make that happen. We can do it. Let's become laborers, participating alongside Jesus out in his harvest field, seeking the lost, being disciples who make disciples, loving God, loving people, and helping others do the same.